What is up, everybody, and welcome to the All NBA Podcast, part of the All City Podcast Network. We got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about the Raptors beating the Suns. The Clippers have a bounce back win over the Sacramento Kings. Two very impressive wins for teams that desperately needed impressive wins. We're also, it's Thursday. We're going to do a little throwback Thursday. We're going to look at the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. 2010s. Ask Tim Legler what made those decades good in basketball. Can't wait for that conversation to help me. The star of the show, Tim Legler. Tim, what's going on? What's up, Adam? I'm good, man. Looking forward to that decades conversation that basically covers my entire life in basketball. I, I didn't really even I didn't really even take up the sport until around 19 uh, around 1980 or so. So it's going to be an interesting discussion, man. I can't wait to get into that. I didn't know. I'll be honest. I didn't know if I should throw the 70s in there. I was like, I mean, technically, you know, I was around, yeah. but I didn't really yeah. follow basketball at all until I hit a growth spurt going into high school. And I decided, hey, you know, this looks like a fun game. Let me try this. Right. Um, all right. So we're going to get all into all those things. But first, got to tell you, we're presented by DraftKings Fantasy Sports. Check out DraftKings has to offer this season using promo code ALLNBA because life's more fun when you're in on the action. DraftKings, the crown is yours. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Agent eligibility restrictions apply. Void were prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. All right. The game we want to start out with, the Suns visiting the Toronto Raptors up north. And the Toronto Raptors put on a nice defensive clinic against them. They get the win 112 to 105. Devin Booker shoots just two of 12 from the field. Kevin Durant takes 30 shots, goes 11 for 30. Um, but the Toronto Raptors were able to kind of put the clamps on. What stood out to you in this one, Legs? Well, I think the first thing that stood out to me in watching this game is I just don't understand how Toronto's 9 and 10. I just They don't have a 9 and 10 roster. They, they have a much better roster than that. Maybe some people would disagree. But when I see this team and I see all the versatility with their wings and the length of their wings and what they're capable of defensively, and they've got shooting as well, a very serviceable center. Um, they don't have, you know, traditional lead guard play. You know, Dennis Schroeder's a very good player, but he's not a guy that's like an organizer or set-the-table guy. He's a scorer more than anything else. So maybe they're lacking a little bit there. Um, but when I look at the rest of this roster – it doesn't make sense to me. And, and I saw a lot of the reason I like them so much in this game last night because I think their length and activity level really bothered the Phoenix Suns um, and their no ability to get, to get space and get shots. And it wasn't just, oh, Durant had an off night or Booker had an off night. There's a reason they had off nights, that the space was disappearing. The length was bothering them. Yeah, of course, you're always going to get on nights like that, yeah, we can go point to a handful of open looks and Durant missed a couple of bunnies in the last six minutes that would have helped them a lot. Yeah, I agree with that. But when you look at the totality of the possessions and the diligence that Toronto was putting into the defensive end of the floor, you're going, well, how is this team 9 and 10, particularly in the East? I mean, there's a, there's a spot to be grabbed beneath those top three. And we're all trying to figure out, like, who is that going to be? Is it the Knicks? Is it the Heat? You know, it could be the Raptors eventually. So I have, I'm going to be honest. I, you know, you got to cover the whole league, Adam. I haven't seen a ton of Toronto Raptors yeah. yet this year, but I've seen them in bits and pieces. And then I watched the entire game last night, and I was so impressed with their activity level and their defensive energy and the versatility of these guys. So I, that's the first thing that stood out. Like, wow, how are they under 500? You know, six weeks into the season. So you texted me that this morning as sort of one of your your the things you're thinking about as you're watching this game. And so I went back and looked at their schedule. They don't have a lot of bad losses. 
if you go back, they started the season one and three, and they lose at Chicago. That's a bad loss. And they lost to Portland at home. That's a terrible loss. So they started out with a couple of bad losses. They just lost on Tuesday at Brooklyn. You could maybe say that was a bad, you know, not a great loss. But outside of that, they're losing to the Bucks. They're losing to the Celtics. They're losing to the 76ers. Um, you know, sort of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, the Orlando Magic. So I think sometimes, legs this early in the season, teams appear bad, but they just hit a tough patch of their schedule. And maybe they're a little bit better and, and things will normalize. I have a suspicion that might be the case for Toronto. I don't know that that's high on them as, as it sounds like you are, but I definitely think that they're a good, you know, good, not great team. And their record shows that they're a little bit below that, that mark. Yeah. Look, I, I just, I go and, and take a look at the parts that they yeah. have. And you're, it's a good point about the schedule. And they also, by the way, you point out, you know, new coach, you know, so yeah. they're, 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 you know, Darko Ryakovich. I hope I said it right. Ryakovich, I believe is how you pronounce it. You know, I don't know much about his background, but he's he's new, new style, new system, new voice. You know, all of that stuff maybe takes some time to sort through him figuring out what rotation he wants. So that's we give him a little bit of leeway there. I just look at the parts, and you know, first I want to talk about Siakam because he's been one of my favorite players in the NBA. You know, for the last probably half a dozen years, and I was thinking about this: if if we were just to go just draft a team, you want to put together a team an actual basketball team, not a group of stars, not an all-star team. Right. You want to go put together the best basketball team you can, and we take turns drafting guys in the entire league. I think I got a spot for Siakam on my team because a couple reasons. One, his motor's off the charts. The guy is just constantly right. coming at you. He is, he's, he's got a ton of energy. He's very versatile offensively, particularly, you know, he's, he's not a pure shooter, but, certainly can make threes and when he gets his feet set he makes a couple now he's really dangerous because he puts it down well he shoots the ball well like off balance on these these weird shots he shoots in the lane um he's yeah. a great slasher he runs the floor well and handles it in the open floor he's got such variety and versatility to his game and he always competes on the other end of the floor and you, you can switch him onto point guards he can guard up to the four spot maybe even the five spot in today's nba so I just look at sure. Seattle last night with his energy level, and I'm like, I want that guy on my team. Like, I, I got a spot for Siakam. If, I, if you're going right. to tell me I just put together one basketball team, go win a game, I think I got a spot for him because of the number of ways I can utilize him. And you saw it last night. And the different guys, he's guarding Booker, he's guarding Durant. I mean, he's taking on these challenges the entire time, and then he's got this relentlessness on the other end where he just never stops moving. He puts so much pressure on you. So I, I just I start with him. He's been there a long time. He's been really good for a long time. He's been an all-star. And sometimes we forget about him when we think about some of the upper echelon players in this league, and I still think he's there. So let's start with the defensive end because I think this is a lot of what you're talking about. This team, I think, has a defensive identity, and they have a defensive path to being a great team, and that's, and that's kind of what you're getting at here with Siakam, who sort of embodies this. OG Ananobi and Scotty Barnes as this sort of lengthy, strong duo add so much length, you know, next to Siakam. And they've got a bunch of guys that are like that even off of the bench. You know, Boucher and uh, Achua and, and Gary Trent has good size for a shooting guard. So they have all of these guys and they can play on ball. As last night you saw Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi, I thought that a great job on ball. And then you have all this length around them. So they have an identity. But that length then comes at a expense on the offensive end because I think they're a very clunky offensive team and they're only 12th in defense legs 
and I haven't been able to go, you know, like you, I haven't watched a ton of Raptors this year, but watching them last night, my thought was they're a better defensive team than 12th. I imagine they're in tough spots a lot because of how hard their offense is. No, I think that's fair. You know, I guess, you know, it's not as pretty or as smooth maybe uh, with as many complementary parts as you need because there are a lot of similar type of guys. Um, yeah. But I do think, you know, I think the key to the whole thing ultimately is is what is going to be the progression and ceiling for Scotty Barnes. You know, he's so valued and, and his name came up a few times in trade discussions with some of these big name superstars where – potentially available and Scotty Barnes was the guy that would get dangled and there's no way the Raptors are parting with him. And you can see why, I mean, with a guy with that kind of size uh, that can handle the ball like that, pass the ball, you can run your offense to him. You know, he's, he's got to improve his shooting and, and become more of a threat off the dribble from out there. And that's going to be to me, what's going to ultimately determine how good this particular group can be. And I don't know that he's going to do that all in one year, but I think Scotty Barnes is the key to the whole thing. If he can add a little bit more range a little bit more of a threat from deeper where you can, cause he runs ball screen a lot. Now he runs ISO as the primary yeah. guy because he's such a good passer with great height. But now if you add the other element where, you know, a guy can go under a pick and he can stop and shoot a three, like elite level wings in this league do. Now you've got a whole nother element to your offense. I think your point is fair. It's not necessarily the smoothest thing to watch, but there's something about them that it kind of just draws me to them with all of these guys that 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 have you know you put three of those guys side by side i mean they go fingertip to fingertip they're touching the sidelines right and, right, and, right. And, and so offensively even on slashes they're big targets you saw plays last night where phoenix very important times in the game did a pretty good job with their initial defense and then all you see are these these hands going up and just tipping the ball yeah. and end up Scotty barnes or archua ends up grabbing it and putting it back in at the last second because it's it's there's a bounce and a length there that phoenix just couldn't match with their guys. And I think so that even though it might not be as smooth as some of the top offenses in the league, I think there's more than enough there. Interesting. Yeah. You're right that it's kind of almost this brutal style of offense and that a guy will go to the basket. It's not the prettiest drive and kind of throw it up a little robustly. And then there's all those arms and just tipping it and stuff. And they get buckets that way. I mean, the other way they get buckets is in transition. They're fifth and fast break points. Last night they had 20 and that was clearly like they need those points. Some teams they get them and that's, Okay, it gets you going. It gets you momentum. I feel like Toronto needs those those points. They don't generate a ton of steals, but they are quick in transition with their length. So when they get stops, they're able to get out on the break. Um, let's go back to Scotty Barnes though, because he is the most interesting player I think on that team by by a wide margin. Who is there any player he reminds you of? Like I always like asking you this about young players: who should he be trying to become? Like who are some of the the various types of players you think he can steal from? Man, that's a good one. I mean, I mean, you know, you th you would think, and it's not necessarily somebody in the league right now coming to mind, but you think like a Scottie Pippen type of guy, right? That's that's mm. the kind of player that I envision him being. Now, to do that, look, and Scottie always had the luxury, you know, when those Chicago teams of not having to be the best offensive player on his team, is he had a pretty good one sure. next to him, taking yeah. a lot of that pressure off him. And it's a little different for Scottie Barnes because I'm not sure in a given night who is their best offensive player. He right. kind of rotates around. You know, a few guys. Um, but I do think that's the profile. A big, a bigger wing that can take it off the glass, handle the ball himself. Ultimately, I think to to be, you know, first of all, team success is, is elevated Scottie Pippen, right, to who he became. Sure. Now you view him differently. You know, if, if that team's not winning championships, maybe you don't have Scottie Pippen in quite as high a regard. 
winning championships combined with his versatility of his game and his defensive prowess, I see Scotty Barnes as like that kind of guy. Similar length, similar defensive prowess and capability. He just has to become – because Scotty Pippen ended up being a big-time three-point threat, particularly in pressure situations. Uh, Scotty Pippen, you know, in playoff career made threes. I mean, look at the list. He's in there. You wouldn't think that. So you have, you have to be able to add the consistency from that distance to your game. But I think that's the kind of guy that I would look at for Scotty Barnes to say that's the kind of impact that I want to have on a nightly basis. And I think he's got the physical tools to do it. He's in, he's a really good athlete. I mean, he had a block yesterday where I mean, he he almost jumped too high on the block. You know, came kind of came out of nowhere, and he's got that wingspan. I think they listed at seven three uh, from the combine or whatever. But he's seven. You know, he's got a good athleticism and a great wingspan. So, whenever we compare players, you know, say oh he should be a Scottie Pippen, it's modern day Scottie Pippen in the way the game has right. evolved. He has the talents to kind of be that. So I don't I don't mind that comp at all. I do agree with you on his scoring though. A jump shot, a more, a more consistent, reliable jump shot. He is shooting 38% from three this year, which is a career high, albeit early in the season. And he's taking five a game. So the numbers are up there on his efficiency. But for him to uh, – teams are going to go under on him when he becomes the primary initiator and pri- primary offensive option. The other guy who never gets talked about, they have a couple underrated guys on their on their roster. And one of the guys I know you like is Jakob Pertl. This guy's a really good – quiet defensive player he just does a, he's, he's a really good post defender in particular and I know Nurkic went off and had a good game last night but that was not through those were mostly through drop-offs and different things Jakob Pertl I think is um he's super long and he is a challenge he's he's in that in-between space where he's not an elite rim protector but he's a really really good one he, he does a lot of things well and and you know you you might not notice it if you're just someone that's kind of casually browsing through box scores Right, you're going to skip over Jakob Pertl's name a, lo- a lot of nights. So therefore, when you sit down and watch a 48-minute game, the way I did last night, and you watch possession by possession, what he's doing, the activity, right, how smart he is defensively, um, with with what he's seeing, and he's always in the right place at the right time. His, you know, he's got soft hands. Now, you know, when he goes yeah. to shoot a free throw, you, you know, you could put it, right. you could put a disclaimer at the bottom of the screen. Viewer discretion is advised because you don't want a young player watching that. Okay, because it's not pretty at the line. I get it. It's all palm and it's a straight dart. Okay, that's fine. Some big guys, you know, they never quite get there from the line. But he's got soft hands. He had a couple of cuts last night where he slashed after one of their guys got in traffic. He slashed, caught it, and it wasn't like your basic little floater over the front of the rim. He had one where he caught it, took one more stride, and shot like a reverse layup with spin. Right. And put English off the glass, a very yeah. difficult finish for a big guy. So he's got soft hands, soft touch. He's got great activity level. He's very good at understanding the pockets he needs to get to. When you're a big and you're down around the rim, you know you have to have a feel for, is my slip going to be into the center of the lane? Like of a, if one of your wings is driving baseline, do I flash to the middle under the rim? That's the pocket. Or if a guy's driving from the slot down the lane, now you got to kind of get along the baseline behind that last defender and kind of hide back there but make yourself available and anticipate it. He's right. really good at anticipating what space to fill up so that he can right. receive a pass and then finish it very simply and basically. And like you said, he's active defensively. He bothers a lot of stuff. He's got his hands above his head all the time. He's never caught flat-footed. I just I, I, I admire him as a guy that's like a perfect center on a lot of teams 
because a lot of centers in this league aren't going to touch the ball much offensively. Right. So what yeah. are you going to be willing to do for us to help us win and take advantage of the limited opportunities you get? Last night, I guess he was either seven for eight or eight for nine. You know, just so efficient in his finishing. Yeah. He only gets seven shots a night. But he goes out there and he gives you, what, 11 points. He's averaging eight boards, 11 points a game on 26 minutes, man. And he's doing it super efficiently. So uh, 73% from the field. So if he touches the ball and leaves the ground yeah. to shoot it, 73% of the time it's going in the basket. Can't ask for much more than that. I, I just was impressed watching him last night. And I think it's, it's he's a guy I want to give a shout-out to because you're not going to notice him a lot of nights um, if you're just if you're not watching Raptors games. The, the player who can be efficient in their touches but doesn't need any number of touches, can have zero on any given night, it's underrated across the league. I mean, he, Jared Allen, I think, is one of these guys who just is like he's content doing whatever role he needs, and if the ball finds him, he'll finish it at a high rate. But if it doesn't find him, he doesn't care. He, it doesn't yeah, make a difference. Zubach, I think Zubac from the yeah. Clippers is the yep. guy I'd put in that category. Like just yep. more than serviceable. You can always rely on them. They're always going to play as hard. Yep. No matter what, no matter no matter how many trips without touching the ball, they're going to screen dive over and over and over again, um, even if they don't get it a bunch of times. And then when they finally do touch it, they finish it at an exceptionally right. high rate. That's a, that's a good one, too. Allen's a good one to put in that category. And it's interesting your point about touch because I think people think of touch as this monolithic thing, touch around the basket, touch in the midrange, touch at the, from the three. They're, they really are all different. And there are players who have just this insane touch around the glass that can't shoot and vice versa. Like Nurkic might be an opposite of this. Nurkic has a decent looking mid-range jumper. You know, his, his form looks around free the basket, good, yeah. free throws. But then around the basket, the guy just flips it up. He has no touch at all. He has some of the ugliest misses. So those two skills are almost completely different. And we think of them as the same. Um, who else on this Toronto Raptors team do you find really interesting? Precious Achua really impressed me last night. And again, right into that mold, come in, you know, great length, super high motor, was guarding everybody on the court, very active. And I thought he did a great job at times when he had to get uh, onto a switch or he had to provide the body in front of Booker or Durant. I thought he did a really nice job of affecting them and giving them something different in their field of vision. Um, so he, he was a guy last night that I was super impressed with. Ananobi is a guy that I've you know I've kind of always liked, and I I give him a lot of credit because when he came out of Indiana, I didn't think he was going to ever become the type of three point shooter that he has become, and he yeah. hit probably the biggest shot of the night last night a, a left yep. a, a left uh, corner three yep. right in front of the bench right it was, I think it was a two point game, and Phoenix had been trailing literally the entire game. They finally string together a couple stops, they get a couple buckets. It's a two point game late inside of five minutes for sure. And you could see the look of exasperation on Kevin Durant's face because he was draped on Ananobi. And by the way, it was like one pass. It was like one pass up the floor into the corner. You know, it's a two-point game, very important possession. And that by now, today's standards, it's considered an okay shot. You know, it used to be, oh, my God, what are you doing? Like, you've got to get a good quality shot here. You, you know, you're on the verge of losing this lead. He had no hesitation, went up. Durant draped on him like palm-on-palm palm contest. And yeah. drains a three from the left corner. I did not think OG Ananobi would get to that level as a shooter in this league. And we know what his defensive prowess is. So those are those are two more guys. We talked about uh, Siakam and Scotty Barnes, and we talked about Pirtle. 
these are two other guys that give him the length of versatility I'm talking about. And both played exceptionally well last night against a high-powered offensive team and um, were difference makers. So to my original point, defensively in today's NBA, overlap can be a great thing if it's wings with length. And they have a lot of those. But offensively, overlap can be a killer because you end up having guys that excel at the same things and struggle. And I think you might have that case with Siakam, OG, and, and Scotty Barnes. If you had to pick between any two of those players, factoring in everything, you know, age and, and everything else, who would you pick if, if you had to pick two out of the three? But who you're just saying you said Ananobi Siakam Barnes and Siakam. Yeah. And Siakam. I'd take Siakam and Barnes. You know, okay. Pascal Siakam, Pascal Siakam's, you know, I know Ananobi's younger and Siakam's been around a while. He's still only 29 years old. I mean, he's got. He's got another five, six years, I think, at playing at this type of level where he's a in the discussion. Now, he might not be this year because, that you know, to, to make a reserve spot on the All-Star team, you've got to have enough team success. I, we'll see what happens with this team. I, you know, I'm going to be shocked if at some point they'll all string together some wins and get up into that mix, you know, in, in that four through, you know, four through six spot. I would think the Raptors have to have that kind of run in them. If that's the case, he'll be in the discussion again, and I think he could be in discussion for the next five or six years. Scotty Barnes? I don't know. Like, it's going to be interesting to see three, four years from now, are we looking at basically the same level of stat line? Which, by the way, nothing wrong with that. He's basically right now a 20, 10, and 6 guy, right? He's 19, 9, and 5 and a half. Okay, so you're talking about just slightly below 20, 10, and 6. All right, well, 20, 10, and 6, you know, th th those are Hall of Fame numbers. You could do right, that for a right. career. So I'm not, I'm not going not gonna to say there's, there's anything wrong with that, but – at the same time, when you do that this early in your career and you're this young, well, then what's next? What's the next step for you? And that's what I'm going to be watching for him over the next few years. Now, we, you know, he might be top off at a 20-point score. Like, that's just who he is because he doesn't really think the game that way. You know, I was thinking about this last night watching Zion. And I'm watching Zion Williamson, and I'm like, I don't know if Zion Williamson has the, the desire or the energy level to be a 30-point scorer because think mm. about the guys we're talking about, the relentless nature of their attacking to get onto that level of a guy like a Jokic or an Embiid or a Curry or a Durant or a LeBron. It's nonstop. They're taking yeah. advantage of every opportunity they get, and they're, and they're willing to move a lot without the ball in the case of Curry. And I look at Isaiah kind of like, I don't know, man. Maybe he's content to be 23 shooting 60% from the field, but it, it, I feel like there's so much more energy there that he's not expending. And I don't know that it's an energy thing with Scotty Barnes. I think it might be the way he views the game and how he likes to play. So I don't right. know that he's going to be a guy that gets to 25 a night. He might not really want to, and maybe he doesn't need to if he's on the right team. You average 20, 10, and 6 on a team that's a contender, man, you know, you, you might be an all-league player. So he's going to be the most fascinating guy for me on this roster to watch over the next few years. But, you know, I think Siakam right now is the most surefire thing of what you're getting. Right. There's no question. I do wonder if him and Barnes have the most overlap when we talk about the three guys. You know, it's kind of an interesting question. I'm not really sure. But those three guys, I just like all three of them. And I'm not sure I like all three of them necessarily as like the three cornerstone pieces, which is what they would be. I think financially speaking, if you're committing to that team long term, those three guys are going to take up your first, second and third payroll spots. And is that enough? Is that is that how you build your championship core? I would have my skepticism. Um, is there anything else you want to mention about the Raptors before we move on to Clippers? I think that 
the one thing that that's going to be difficult for them potentially to overcome um, is you know the role that Dennis Schroeder has. It's tough, and I understand that Siakam and Barnes touch the ball a lot early in the shot clock, and they're kind of like the guys that are the motor and decision makers. But they're not you know, they're not going to create a ton of pressure off ball screen and get downhill. And you look around the league, the teams that we talk about most nights that really have a shot, those are the kind of guys that they have. Guys that can that can get that ball screen, turn the corner, be downhill, and get in the paint, and then make decisions out of that. Schroeder is is at his best when he can just go hunt shots because he's very very difficult right. to guard yeah. with his speed and his his start stop, you know, and he can string together buckets and get really hot and hurt you. But as a lead decision maker, that might be difficult for them, and what maybe why they can't get into a category yeah. where we think they're as good as the Knicks who have a Jalen Brunson right. running that spot or the Bucks who have a Lillard. And, you know, the, the Celtics don't – they have Drew Holiday. He's not necessarily that kind of player, but still, certainly I think a little bit more of a table setter than a guy like Schroeder. So right. that's that's something that, that as much as I like the, some of these parts, especially defensively, the havoc that they ca- are capable of causing, that's that's something that you got to look at with this team and, and wonder – you know, is that going to be good enough at that spot for them to really get relevant? And this is a team that needs to be set up. I think they take the third fewest shots that are unassisted, meaning almost all of their field goal attempts are assisted. They need somebody setting the table for them. And oftentimes, obviously, that's all of the guys that are driving and kicking, Scotty Barnes in particular. But um, so they're a team that needs that specific thing. Let's move on to the Clippers, though, because the Clippers suffered. We talked about this on Tuesday what might have been their worst loss or one of their worst losses of the year, they've had a handful of them, but a shorthanded Denver team that didn't have Murray Jokic or Aaron Gordon, they fall. DeAndre Jordan and Reggie Jackson outduel, you know, their big four. But they bounced back last night playing a, a Sacramento team who we're both very high on, has been playing very well, and they bounced back in a big way. This game was not close. I mean, after this, there was a second quarter run that was like a 15-2 to two run or something like that. And after that, Sacramento never even made a, a counterpunch at any point in the game. What did you see from this one that stood out to you, and why, was, why were the Clippers able to bounce back? Well, the biggest thing I saw was the best version of James Harden, uh, you know, since the Houston mm. days. You know, you know, you might say the best version was James Harden averaging 35 points a game, running high ball screen and ISO every trip with the Rockets and leading the league and scoring yeah. and winning MVP. Okay, maybe you think that was the best version of him? Well, so. since, since those days passed and he moved on and went to Brooklyn and Philly and now here, this is James Harden at his best. I thought that he picked his spots, but he, he looked aggressive and confident and he had a little bit more of a burst early in the game. And he got rolling early, and I think he was the difference in their team. He goes five for eight for the three, eight for 14 from the field. And he also was, you know, making plays for people uh, with his passing. He's still an elite-level passer. Um, yep. But there are times when he is not feeling it offensively, when he becomes so predictable as a passer that he loses his effectiveness overall. He's got to have the right mix. And the nights he was really good in Philly in the regular season, that's what he looked like, what he did last night. And we haven't seen it whole lot of that because of everything that went down in Philly. I and mean, he hasn't done it this year, certainly. He looked like that last night. And those guys all looked comfortable. And, and I'm watching the game and I'm saying, all right, I know because of the way that this team kind of came together and just everything about them, it, it's, it's, it's hard to go buy in. 
right? If, if you got All 30 right. teams and 30 numbers on the roulette table and one of those is the Clippers, you're probably not putting chips on that. Or maybe a slide one chip over there, right? Just to cover yourself. I just want to point out that every show you find a way to slight the Clippers, and I love it. It's yeah, it's like, like, it's like you know, if I, if they're if if their number, I got thirty logos on a roulette table. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to always put a chip on there, right, to cover myself. Okay, right? it's like because right. like, I'm a roulette guy. I'm a roulette guy at the casino. Okay. It's stupid because you can't win at roulette. But right. I always, I always put, I always put at least five bucks on the zero double zero split, right? Cause that, cause that's going to hit. And it's so irritating <laughs> when you've got all these numbers all over and it, that hits. Right. So I always put one there to protect myself. Cause at worst case, I get my money back on that bet. Right. That's kind of, how I feel about the Clippers. I'm going to keep a chip. there. I'm going to keep a chip there. <laughs> the Clippers are the double them, zero. Got it. Yeah. Adam, when you watch them last night, you're going, go ahead, man. Dismiss this team at your own peril. I mean, look at the talent on this team. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's like, and when you have a night like that, where Kawhi goes 14 for 18, and Paul George didn't have a particularly good shooting night, but 7 for 18 is not horrific, and then Harden's 8 for 14. And then those role players in the starting lineup, Zubach and Mann yeah. go 15 for 24 from the field combined. So you watch him last night against the team, by the way, in Sacramento, you know, they got everybody out there, they're playing, you know, super fast. They couldn't stop them. They could not guard the Clippers at all last night. They never really made a run after they got down 20. And so I'm watching the Clippers and I'm just saying, man, you don't, you want to dismiss them because, you know, it's like, okay, enough with this team. You can't, you cannot dismiss what they are capable of doing on a given night. And last night was the best version we've seen since they put this together. It was, but I'm going to play devil's advocate and you're going to hate it because last night was. Sacramento on the second night of a back-to-back. -back. Oh my God! Back-to-back. <laughs> -back. You know, didn't we do? Wait, did we do? A, did we do one of these shows yesterday? We did on Reddit, right? So we're going back to back. No wonder I'm so tired. I knew I was exhausted for some reason. <laughs> we we weren't. We did a show Tuesday. We're rested, man. Um, but here's 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 the thing. So all right, all I'm saying is the Clippers to me are a team that is going to look like the best team in the world whenever the game is easy for them. If you're if you're not making them run, if you're not making them feel you defensively, if you're not getting physical with them and making them earn it, they're going to look like the greatest team because this is a collection of guys that love pickup basketball, pickup style basketball, one on one. And in that run, that 15 to two run or whatever it was to close the first half in the, at the end of the second quarter. The Kings were on their heels every possession. There was one play. Kawhi Leonard dribbles up the court and just stops and pops for three. Nobody checked him. Nobody picks him up. Nobody gives makes anything make made him put the ball on the floor and, and, and attack. He just got to comfortably walk into it. And there were several plays like that, and they all made their shots. And I thought, this is the one thing you can't do against the Clippers. Let them feel like they're in an open gym because they are elite open gym players. I think that's fair. You know, you, you know, it sounds almost like you're saying a little bit front runners. Like if they get off and they get sure. comfortable, right? If they get comfortable, you got a problem on your hands. You got a yeah. real problem on your hands because of the elite talent level. But if you make them feel like, you know what, there's going to be an alley fight yeah. and, and you're going to have to work for it a little bit. And you're, that means that you're going to have to have some ball reversals. You're going right. to have to, you know, have multiple actions on the same set because we're not getting it off the initial action. I think that's a fair point. Um, they just have, but they just have such an array of elite level, tough shot makers. 
Now, that's not a way I want to run my offense every night, and I don't think that's a recipe for a championship. That you know, that's 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 a tough way to win. But man, oh man, you know, if you get this team, somebody's going to get this team in a best of seven. You, we, we, assuming that you know they're not a playing team and they get eliminated in a playing. Assuming that they, yeah, it could happen. You're right. You could. There's enough teams out west that you can make an argument for. Maybe, maybe that's exactly what happens to this team. You got to do a best of seven though. With this level of talent, I mean, that, imagine if that's your first round game, first round series, you know, and you're yeah. and you're a team like Denver or you're a team like Phoenix or you know Oklahoma City or Minnesota. Let's say they like that last year, for instance, Sacramento. They're a three seed, had this incredible year. We're talking about all season long, and your reward for that is Golden State, right. and, and you get yeah. the Warriors, and you get Steph Curry, and you get a fifty point game seven out of like that's what you yeah. got to deal with to overcome. So it's it's kind of the same here. Like one of these top teams. If Oklahoma City or Minnesota, because these other teams deal with injuries or whatever, and they end up in that top, you know, in, in two, three seed or something, and you got to play a team like the Clippers in a best of seven, I mean, that's going to be a very difficult series for any any of those younger teams that have ascended to get through, like Sacramento faced last year with Golden State. And that's all I'm saying. Like, I, you can't just say, oh, forget the Clippers. They're the Clippers. They're not doing it. You can't do that with this level of talent. Yeah, I love the comment from Steve Wynn. He says uh, Clippers are front runners until they are in front three games to one, <laughs> which is a, <laughs> a nice little dig there. All right, let's take a break. On the other side, we got to get into our Throwback Thursday topic, where we look at the uh, what made the '80s, '90s, 2000s, 2010s, and maybe even 2020s. We'll try to project forward all of that on the other side. But first. NBA fans, the wait is over. Basketball is back in DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is celebrating with an unbeatable offer. New customers can score $200 instantly in bonus bets for throwing down $5 on the NBA. Win or lose, it doesn't matter. You start the season with an instant dub. And with DraftKings Parlays, you can throw down multiple bets and get even more return on your action. They even have the same game parlays where you can put them all down on the exact same game. So you can go Jokic triple-double, Michael Porter threes, uh, you could go, what else happened last night for this uh, Nuggets team? Jamal Murray assists. He had six of those things last night. You could have put all those things together, and you would have hit your bet. So basketball is more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code ALLNBA. New customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly for betting just $5. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code ALLNBA. The crown is yours. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY. Or text Hope NY. That's four six seven three six nine. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call eight 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 seven eight nine seven 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 seven, or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, licensed partner Gold Nugget Lake Charles, Louisiana. Twenty one and older. Age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire one hundred and sixty eight hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com/slash/basketball terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, we are back for the second half now of the All-NBA Show, and we got Throwback Thursday. Legs played in the 90s, grew up watching the 80s. I came up in the 90s, started watching the, the game in the 2010s really closely. So this is a good chance for us to, to go and look at all of these different decades and talk about how the game has evolved. And with the central question of what made basketball great in the decade? So let's start with the 80s. Legs, what made basketball great in the 1980s? Uh, it's, it's pretty simple. It's the Lakers-Celtics. I mean, you think the of the decade. 
you think of the decade of the 80s, you think of that rivalry and just everything that went into that, where the league was at, at, at the start of the decade. And now you get Magic coming into the league. You get Bird coming into the league. These are two guys that, you know, had this rivalry that was created in college playing in the national championship game. It carries to the NBA. They go to storied franchises, um, you know, both of which needed them at that time. And, and then they proceeded, you know, it's funny because you would think that they played every year in the finals in the eighties. They didn't right. really do that. In fact, two of the right. two of Boston championships came against the Rockets. Right. right? So the, it wasn't every year, but it felt like that. And what made that awesome was the fact, I thought it was even better. The fact that you only saw them twice in a regular season, right? So the hype around the two regular right. seasons was so big and by the way you know and, and and look we can you know we've talked enough about the load management everybody knows how i feel about that i was just about to bring you, it up hey one thing you had one thing you, you could pretty much guarantee was they those guys were going to play when you yeah. saw those games no matter what they had going on no matter what they were limping through or how they felt physically there's no way they're missing those two matchups in the regular season and then they would eventually usually meet in the finals but that rivalry and the memories created from those series and that are just etched in our minds. And in some cases, what both of those franchises went through in those given years to get there, you know, right. Bird, for instance, against the Pistons with the, with the steal he had late in that game. And, you know, the, the Lakers, some of the stuff they had to go through just to get to the finals. And then these epic, epic moments that will, will, will you know, I know for me, you know, as a guy that took up the game later in life, you know, 1980, I'm going into high school. I was ba mainly a baseball player. Watching these two teams and Bird and Magic, and they became my two favorite players. It was weird to have two favorite players that are rivals on opposite teams. You know, it's kind of strange, but it's because I loved their style. I loved their unselfishness. I loved their toughness. I loved the way both of those teams played. To me, was the essence of what basketball is supposed to look like. Um, and so that, for me, you say 80s NBA – I just absolutely love that decade. It changed the course of my life watching at the NBA at the beginning of that decade and what those two teams look like. So for me, I think that's where you start when you start talking about that decade is those two teams and the rivalry they created. So I would say, and we had the same thing first down on our list here, I would say the rivalries. And the Lakers-Celtics was the ultimate rivalry. But you throw the Pistons in there and their their rivalry with the Bulls and Michael Jordan, their rivalry with uh, the Celtics. And, um, you know, it was a decade that was defined by three or four teams and their rivalries to each other in, in certain ways. And I think that's something, you know, everybody talks about parity, the, the want for parity. And, and I'm one of these guys, somebody coming from Denver, a small market team. I want parity because it's the only chance my team has to, you know, to really be great. But there is something too stories that unfolded over the course of a decade. The Magic Bird story took a decade to tell. It wasn't a thing that happened in two years and then we moved on right. from it. It was every year you wondered what the new chapter was. And I think that there is something to be, there's something too that was really important and really good for basketball. It was. And I think um, be, being a guy that ended up going to college in Philadelphia uh, you know, fall of 1984, I, I get to Philly for the first time, right at the tail end of what I consider to be the most underrated um, team uh, for a number of years in the league ever. And that's the Sixers 
from 1980 mm. to 1983, including the team that won it in 83 is one of the greatest teams of all time. You, you can start ranking top 10 teams of all time. They better have a place in there. Um, Mo, is and this, this one's Moses, Dr. J. Is is Bobby Jones Mo, still on the team? Is Mo he, Chief, Andrew, Tony. Okay. Bobby Jones, like that that group of guys. Yeah. Um, you know, Moses was the difference maker. They went out and they got him. When he came in, yeah. it changed him from a really good team to a championship caliber team. But they went to three finals in four years. They only won one. So as a result, right. they're not given their credit historically. Right. But look at the teams. Look at the teams they had to get by. I mean, they lose to the Lakers, you know, in the NBA Finals in 1980. They lose to the Lakers again in 1982. These are all-time great teams that they're losing to, and then they finally win it in '83. And by the way, who are they having to get through every year in the East? One of the all-time great teams right. in the. 80 Celtics team. So right. they they you know, they were third in the pecking order during that decade. And yeah. but but because they only won one title, there I feel like they're so far removed from 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 Boston and the Lakers and it's just not the case. They were a lot closer to those two teams that people give them credit for. And I think actually Moses Malone to me is the single most underrated player in the history of the really? NBA. Really? Yes. Yes, because when you start talking about the, the fun games that you have at at, at the bar when you're talking about, oh, pick teams, who's your who's your center, and you start listing centers, Moses' name doesn't come up. Never. Right? You go Will, you go Russell, you go Shaq, you go Kareem, right? Those and maybe Hakeem Olajuwon. You go those five guys. And then maybe if how long, depending on how many beers you got time for, you might get to Moses. <laughs> but I I'm telling you, if you're saying I can, I gotta go out there and play a five on five game, we pick anybody historically, and you're telling me I have to take Moses Malone as my center. I am perfectly fine with that. I'm perfectly fine with that. So you're going to hate this because, again, this is before my time. But my impression of Moses is that his best weapon was offensive rebounding and that he had this sort of brutalist style of play that I've wondered how much – I've always wondered how much would his game translate. What else was to his game that makes you so confident that he was such a great player besides the rebounding? It was more than that. He had he when he got you on his back in the low post. He was immovable. He was as, mm. as immovable practically as Shaq, even though he didn't have that kind of weight and mass. Yeah. He had great hands. He had he had literally. It looked like he had glue on his fingertips. If he got one finger on a basketball in traffic, it was Moses's ball to be had. Yeah. The other thing for a guy that big to go to the line. And, 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 you know, be as effective. He understood, like, I'm going to get so many opportunities here on a given night. I've got to turn myself into a big-time free-throw shooter that my team can count on me, and they could. And I'll say one other thing about Moses. Every time he went to the foul line, there had to be, as soon as they ran to the other end of the floor, three different people that worked there, the ball boys, ball girls, had to run out and mop the foul line. Because he left, <laughs> working hard. He, left, he left a waiting pool big enough for small yeah. children to play in of sweat. <laughs> he also, by the way, Adam, he'd grab a rebound, right? And if it got into his body at all, and then he threw that outlet pass, good luck catching that thing. It was the slickest object on the universe. <laughs> Trying to catch the Moses Stallone outlet pass. Like you could see the beads of sweat flying off the ball as it was going to the guard for an outlet. So that's something else an odd little tidbit about moses that kind of stood out to me but uh he just man he just was such a workhorse in the paint and he was relentless yeah offensive rebound and of course it's a joke now if somebody misses a layup sorry about that somebody misses a layup 
and then they and then they get their own miss. Oh, I did a Moses Malone there, you know, intentionally yeah. missing to pad his stats. Moses Malone wasn't padding his stats, man. He, yeah. he was missing shots, and then he was just the first guy with the second jump to go get the ball. So he, yeah. I just – I always thought he was one of the most relentless players uh, that's played in this league, and I just don't think he gets enough credit when you talk about the all-time great centers. Yeah. The other thing I had for the 80s here, the last one was pace of play, one reason why it was great. Now, this wasn't every team. I do laugh legs because the 80s – people always talk about, oh, back in the 80s it was a physical league. It was a physical league. But some of the there was a lot of successful teams that were not physical in that way that were more finesse teams, fast break teams. Like the Denver Nuggets make it to the 1986 Western Conference Finals. That team didn't play any defense. They ran up and down the court. They were passing. They were like Showtime light, you know, Showtime without the the superstars. But you had the, you had the Lakers. You had a lot of teams that played fast breaking basketball in the 80s. Yeah. And I think that's one thing I also think about that era that made it great. You know, another thing, I, and a real quick last point on this, and again, it gets back to the, to the Celtics-Lakers more than anything, but it was really the whole league. I don't know, man. You know, in the 90s were kind of similar. It was that decade I played in. Um, this was pre-review. So, meaning yeah, that you're so review. <laughs> yep. so, so, you you physically, you know, yeah. the rules that you had about preventing layups, and, look, and I'm not saying it was necessarily a great thing to lay guys out. But what you did create out of some of those moments was an edge and an animosity and a genuine dislike for each other that I think is good in sports. And I don't yeah. know that we have a lot of that now. We have some, We have some. I guess you can call them rivalries, and it's more not really rivalries. It's more like, wow, this is a great matchup, and I love watching these two right. teams play yeah. each other. That's not the same thing as a rivalry. And, and some of the rivalry that we had in the league, and it wasn't just Celtics-Lakers, was created because of what you were allowed to do physically to guys on drives. And, and look, in some cases, unfortunately, some guys got hurt. Some guys bounced right back up. But it did create this level and this feeling of this is a war and we're not giving up this stuff easily. And so you kind of circle your calendar for the next time those two teams were going to play. Because you're on the edge of your seat, like wondering like, what's about to happen tonight. Because these guys genuinely, they didn't have social media, they weren't communicating with each other, they weren't watching yeah. each other's, you know, they weren't they weren't watching each other's posts, you know. And they didn't they necessarily didn't, grow up together. There's a whole other layer no, of this where know. nowadays these guys know each other since third grade or whatever. And back then they might not have met each other until they meet up at the on the NBA stage. So they don't don't have those that familiarity. I thought you were gonna say something different though, with pace of play, which or or review which is i am always blown away when i watch iconic old games and there's no timeouts at the end of the game the end of the game the clock just keeps going teams keep yeah. playing and and the game ends and something like the jordan shot on, on elo you know i you think about that when you think about today there'd be eight timeouts and you do this and you advance the ball and timeout and this that. that game just happened it just the played out and then there was the timeout and the shot and that was it Hundred percent. And then, look, are you one of those guys? Or were you good with living with human error? <laughs> right. I am. Sometimes your team gets the benefit. Sometimes they didn't. Yeah. But you had to. The ref had to call that in the moment. And yeah. you know what? And you weren't going to get. By the way, you might get a replay. You're not getting a replay from eight angles in super slow mo. Right. Yeah. We're now because the other night, the end of the uh, what game was that? I can't remember. It was this week, a couple nights ago. The last like two and a half. Last two and a half, three minutes of the game took like 20 minutes. Yeah. 
because of the number of reviews and you got to go over and you got to get it right. I know some people feel like, well, if you have the capability, let's get it right. We want to be right. I don't know. The league seemed to be doing pretty well when we just were trusting referees. And sometimes you missed them, man. And sometimes you got them right. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it kind of probably balanced out for teams. You know, every fan of every team thinks they're always getting the short end of the stick. So true. Even, even now, I've got friends of teams that are so passionate about their teams, particularly the Philly teams, that even though the replays <laughs> are showing that they yeah, got the yeah. call, insisting they yeah. still somehow got robbed. Yeah, that's just a fan mentality, and I get it. But I was okay yeah. living with living with yeah. human error in the game. That gives you something to talk about. Let's move. We got to go quick here on now to the yeah. '90s. Um, I think this one's almost simpler in some ways. What made the '90s great in basketball? Uh, Michael Jordan, and it's really the second half of the decade, and what the Bulls represented. And I can speak to it because I played against those teams, and I can just tell you. Uh, being a an opposing player against those teams, home or away. So the away experience was the old Chicago Stadium. You were down at locker rooms. They went down these steps off the court. It was literally like light bulbs flickering in the hallway, yeah. like con- like a concrete hallway, concrete yeah. floor. You go into the there's puddles of water. Like you go into the locker room. And I would compare it to like the scene in like Gladiator when like when Russell Crowe, they're back there and they're first getting ready to go out to battle. They're kind of looking through the little slats of light, like wondering like what are we giving, thrusting ourselves into? It's kind of what it felt like playing them in that stadium. You go out there, you go through lamps, and of course you do introductions. And by the time they got to Jordan and the iconic music was playing and they introduced Michael Jordan, literally I'd be shoulder to shoulder with a teammate like on our bench looking down at them at their starting lineup. You could not hear yourself communicate with the guy next to you. That's the environment that they created in Chicago Stadium and this and with like what Michael Jordan did. And then at home, it felt different too, Adam, because at home, you're driving to a home game, but everything in the arena, the electricity yeah. in your building was so different. It was so yeah. different. It literally was like, you know, the Beatles are coming in. Yeah. Right? That's what it felt like. And, and the I, th- I think the Warriors are only team that have come close to this. And it was a different scale, yeah. I know, with Jordan. But the Warriors in their heyday, it was similar. Where you walked in and you're like, oh, this is a different game. Not just because the fans were there, but the buzz was there. And we played the Bulls in the playoffs in 97 in the first round. It was best of five. And we ended up getting swept 3-0. But the, all three of those games were still up in the air with two minutes to play. Um, yeah. I mean, we took them right to the wire. And in fact, after the game, after the series – Jordan said we were the next up-and-coming team in the Eastern Conference because we had this incredibly young, talented front line. We had a lot of shooting. And then what happened was our front office decided to go ahead and trade everybody of value for some reason. Um, <laughs> and, and so that didn't pan out. But just knowing what that felt like, running out onto the court, because we played them two in Chicago, then one at home, that one home game and that playoff game, running out onto the court and watching our crowd – it was unlike anything I'd experienced for the electricity that the Bulls created being in your building for a playoff game. Yeah. So, it, yeah, and it's the funny thing is we talk about the decade of 90. It didn't start until the second half. They didn't win their first championship until 96. But then they, Wait, you know, the Bulls. I'm they went in 91, 2, and 3. I was thinking about the three-peat when I was in the league. Right, but so they went six in eight years. They probably, yeah. I don't know if you agree, I think they probably win eight straight. Man, I if, don't know. If Jordan didn't go, you know, know. And try to hit curveballs for, you know, a couple yeah. of years. Yeah. I don't know if you agree with that, and I don't want to disrespect Houston, but, I mean, come on. Yeah. Why, why, why wouldn't they have? 
Uh, fatigue. I think fatigue is a real thing when you're playing that much. You don't believe in fatigue, so I'm never going to convince you of this. Uh, you're a machine. Well, hey, listen, I got news for you. They were playing back-to-backs back then, and they were doing pretty <laughs> they well. They were. They were. Um, here's another thing about the 90s that I think is underappreciated. The synergy between the college game and the NBA game, I think, in the 80s and 90s was important because the guys coming into the league that were stars in the 90s, most, not all, but most were stars at the college level. So there was this synergy between, I, I, I think there was probably less of a schism between a college basketball fan and an NBA fan because there was a continuity of sorts to it. It's like you graduated into the NBA. I think with the one and done rule and with the preps to pros and all this stuff that came in the decade after it, you lost a lot of that. But the 90s to me had a lot of guys who came into the league as known commodities because of their colleges, and there was just a synergy there. Do you agree with that? I think that's a great point. I think it's a really good point. And that is a lot different than it feels like now. You know, most of the guys now you see that get into the league and have an impact right away. We're there for one year. Right. You, don't, you, don't, you don't have an identity with that player in that school really at all for the most part. Yeah. And I saw a great note here by uh, Steve Wynn. He, he makes a great note. And I think we should mention it. That's the other thing in the 90s, the dream team. All right, so the 92 Olympics, and I, I you know, remember that team being put together, the greatest basketball team ever assembled. And for me, 88, we lose, uh, losing the Olympics. So they make this decision. You know what we're going to do? We're going to go lay down the hammer. And they did. And I felt like that was the ultimate drop the mic message. Go back to the college guys. Who cares? Like, do we, do you have to win that every, and by the way, if we don't win it, do we call it a national embarrassment? No, we immediately have excuses why we don't win it. Oh, well, international game is caught up. And, well, you can't slap an all-star team together. Well, no, stop. If you're saying that it's critical to win and you're sending all the best players and you don't win, then let's call it a national embarrassment if you don't win. I felt like they went, they sent the message. They were winning games by 40 and 50 points. They showed the world. This is what it looks like if we want to get serious about the Olympics and send the best basketball players in the world. They should have went back and given the honor back to the college guys after that. I would have had no problem with it, even if it meant they weren't winning the gold medal every year. I liked pros, especially now I like pros playing just because I do think the world is caught up. And so now I think even with the U.S. giving their best punch, you know, it's still in doubt to some degree. Um, real quickly on the 90s to wrap it up, I think that the media of the 90s in the NBA was also phenomenal. The NBA on NBC broadcasts are obviously iconic broadcasts. Uh, you had NBA inside stuff coming in, which is now we take for granted that type of media coverage. But that was revolutionary at the time. This like behind the scenes look at the NBA. And that's what helped grow the game, I think, through that decade was you had these like human interest profiles and in all the players, the players of the 90s. <clears throat> they it was when they started to become celebrities at this new level. I think it exploded in the next decade in ways that maybe weren't great. Sports Illustrated. There just were there were so many uh, big media moments around the NBA in the '90s that I think is interesting. If we go to the 2000s, I'll I'll start with this one. What made basketball great in the 2000s? The drama, yeah. and I'm not necessarily sure it was great, but the soap opera of the NBA, the soap operafication, began in the 2000s really in earnest with Kobe and Shaq and some of the other. We talked about rivalries of the 80s teams. The 2000s were rivalries amongst themselves, perhaps, that, that added drama. Yeah, look, we're talking about, you know, these teams that win in the decades. So we talked about Lakers, Celtics in the 80s. We talked about the Bulls in the 90s, you know. And you look at the decade of the 2000s. From 2000 to 2009, seven of those titles were won by two franchises, yeah. the Spurs and the Lakers. 
So the Lakers started it out with a three-peat, and then you had the Spurs, you know, it seemed like winning every odd year. And then you capped it off at the end, 2009. The Lakers win another one. And then, of course, they win again in 2000, which would technically be the next decade. But it was really dominated by those two franchises uh, more than anything else. And I think you go back to probably, for me, it's going to be the Lakers teams, the dominance of yeah. those two players together at their peak. And I remember going down to those games in Philadelphia when they played the Sixers in, in the finals and watching what Shaq did to the defensive player of the year, Dikembe Mutombo, and the unstoppable force that he was. And just go back and look at Shaq's numbers through that three-year run in the postseason. <laughs> it's it's really, really, really – anytime you start to question Shaq's ranking historically, just go look at that and what that man – they had all these shooters around them, and it was just – it was the greatest show in the league. Um, yeah. and, it's, and you wonder – what could have happened and what they could have accomplished if they didn't have sort of personal falling out that broke that up um, where they would they have been able to win four or five. Uh, we'll never know because the dominance they showed over those three, it certainly leaves you thinking that there could have been more. The other thing about the two thousands to me. So we talked about the new media and all the different things, the NBA, the money of the NBA in the two thousands was different. Mike in 1998, Michael Jordan, I think made $30 million as a contract. The second highest paid player, I think, was two or three million. So the second highest paid player on a team was making three million dollars. Fast forward to 2004, and all of a sudden the contracts are, you know, you're talking about 18, 19 year olds making 30, 40 million. Now we take it for granted because it's been 25 years of this, but that decade was the explosion of contracts where they went from a one or two million to all of a sudden 25, 30 million dollars was, was normal to see. And I think that was also a sort of a defining trait. I don't know if that's what made it great. Um, but it was certainly a, a defining trait. And then lastly, these got the pop culture icons. I think Allen Iverson, Kobe Bryant, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, these were guys that became more, even though Michael Jordan was obviously the first guy to transcend the sport in the two thousands, you had guys, a lot of guys that seemed to transcend the sport as the, the league. These guys became more than basketball players. They became pop culture icons more and more. I agree with that. And I think the, the league has always been great about the individual marketing of the players. That's what's driven the league, you know, going back to the bird magic days, it's franchises. Yes. And it's team stories. Yes. But it's, it's the, it's the marketing of the individual players that the league has been so good at. And they continue to do that. And that, that's, that, you know, it's great to bring those guys up. Another show, we're going to have to get into the 2010s and, and the debate over whose decade is that LeBron's or Steph's. And then also going from the 2020s that are, that are now we're just starting. We're a few years yeah. in. What's what's going to define this coming decade? I think that's going to be a great discussion. And yeah. who and what teams? And there's a lot of uncertainty and unknown there. We know a pretty good start with Jokic here at the start of the decade. But but you know there's going to be other guys that are going to be in the mix here and on other teams and franchises. So I think that's two decades that we can cover in a separate show. And will we ever get to a point where no player defines the decade? The 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 Adam Silver dream of true parity where nobody owns the decade the way we typically have in the NBA. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It'll be an interesting one. But legs, I like throwback Thursday. Yeah, I do too, man. It's 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 great to reminisce. And I think there's a lot of people out there based on the comments and and you know the number of people you know, checking in with us and giving us great also great feedback on what we're talking about. There's a lot of people that are hungry for this, man. Because it's uh, there's so many there's so many memories to be brought up. It's nostalgia mm -hmm. for people.
For sure. Everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. We're going to round out the week tomorrow. There's some good games tonight. We haven't had the best games this week, to be honest with you. But we do have some good ones lined up for tonight. So tomorrow should make for a great show. Don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Spread the word. Help us grow this show. And uh, hit that like button for us on the way out. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.